Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's fiction category manager, and I'm joining you over Zoom today, and I'm thrilled to be here. I'm joined by Hannah Armstrong, uh, my friend, colleague, and fiction lover. How are you, Hannah? I'm very well, thanks, Ben. How are you? I'm good. And our guest on the show today is Diana Reid. Diana Reid is a Sydney-based writer who graduated from Sydney University in 2019. Her debut novel is called Love and Virtue. It's a thought-provoking book about sex, power, consent, class, and the frailties of friendship. Diana, thank you very much for being with us. Not at all. Thank you so much for having me. Um, thank you for your time. Uh, so this is your your first book, uh, debut novel, and I understand that you, you sat down and wrote this thing uh, during the pandemic fallout, um, because prior to that, you were touring a musical, of all things. Uh, so <laughs> a novel is something very different. Uh, what what uh, inspired you to make a foray into novel writing? Um, oh, well, I should say that Touring is very generous. I um, <laughs> had done, um, I co-written a musical um, and had had no part in the composition of the music. So I just wrote the script. Um, so I guess in that sense, it is a bit more similar to novel writing. Um, and that had um, had a show at the New Theatre in Newtown and we sort of had vague plans to take it elsewhere, but then um, they were shut down by COVID. Um, and then I suppose my uh, the catalyst for writing a novel was that it was sort of something that I'd always thought I'd like to do, like, before I died. Um, and then when COVID happened last year and I found myself with nothing to do, I just sort of thought, well, if I can't write a novel in these conditions um, when there are literally no distractions at all, then it's probably not something I'm capable of. So I sat down to Love and Virtue. And what can uh, readers expect from this novel of yours? What's it about? So Love and Virtue is an Australian campus novel and it deals with sex, power and consent through the eyes of two very different but equally brilliant young women in their first year at university. Um, and I, I think readers can expect to be uh, challenged, I hope, to rethink things that they previously thought were black and white. Um, and I wouldn't put this as high as an expectation, but I, I hope that they also get some laughs out of it and that they um, find it compelling and want to keep turning the pages. Yeah, I think if that was your intention, it definitely is like a page turner. I started reading it, like I was like, oh, I'll just read a couple of pages and then before I knew it, I was like halfway through and really, really enjoying it. Um, so you've definitely nailed it. Um, a lot in this book felt like very true to my own experiences at uni um, and like when I was 18 and I think you've really captured that feeling of being 18 and being in like a foreign environment and kind of all that like I identity like searching and constructing that goes on. Um, I was just wondering how much of this did you draw from your own experiences or your own life? Yeah, it's um, an interesting question I feel like it's quite hard to answer um it's because it's sort of um hard after the fact to sort of say how the sausage was made but um so I um went to university and um as Ben said at the start I wrote this book the year after I'd left so 
um, the kind of campus culture and the, um, I guess, uncertainty of that time in your life and the kind of people you meet were all very fresh to me. But the incidents and the events and the people in the novel are all completely fictional. So, um, yeah, it was like, I guess the, the vibe, for want of a better word, was very much inspired by my real life and places that I'd been and things I've, I'd observed or conversations I'd been privy to, but the um, actual substance of the book is all fiction. Good to know. Some of are great, <laughs> um, what, what goes on. Um, uh, what, one thing I did, I did notice is that uh, uh, you did a double degree and there was a major in philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, both Michaela and Eve, your, your two characters in this novel, they do. They take philosophy. Yeah, here am I that. being like, it's all fictional. Um, yeah, they do the same <laughs> degree as me. <laughs> um, I, I just, uh, can you talk about the kind of, the big contrast you have in this novel between the pursuit of morality as a kind of concept, right? Uh, in, and the actual challenge of living a moral life for your two characters, because they, um, and, and everyone around them in this novel is uh, really constantly testing the limits of morality and, and often breaking them, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think what I was trying to do there was um, demonstrate that moral knowledge is not just academic. So I think, or not even remotely academic. So what I was trying to showcase was that um, studying philosophy and being sort of at an abstract theoretical level across lots of moral and ethical concepts doesn't necessarily equip you to enact them in real life. Um, And that's not at all to knock philosophy or say that people shouldn't study it because I think it's always helpful to think about these things. I guess it's more to make a broader comment about the fact that just by virtue of being human, we can't always get our behaviour to cohere with our principles. Um, And I think that that's also, I I think it's it's not only relevant for um, the sort of philosophers in the book, the most obvious being the professor who has a, a very good academic understanding of philosophy, but does some pretty textbook deplorable things, um, which he knows are wrong and sort of jokes about being wrong. Um, as the other character who sort of evidences that is Eve, um, and she's a product of a sort of hyper-articulate, hyper-politically engaged culture. And I think what I was trying to comment on there was that I do think that we live in a sort of environment where we can sometimes conflate um, dense academic language and being articulate and having an understanding of really quite complicated and convoluted concepts with being a good person. And I think that that often happens, especially online. There's sort of this like assumption that if you can have a conversation at a particular level, and if you can talk about things in a, at a particular level of sophistication, then you must be a good person. Um, and I think that, yeah, being a good person is hard. And it's not like a matter of vocabulary or how many degrees you have. It's just always going to be hard. Yeah, totally. Um, I think that definitely comes across in the character of Eve. 
Um, and speaking of Eve, can we just like talk about her for a sec? Yeah. So <laughs> she was a character that I was really fascinated by. Um, and there's this line really early on in the novel um, that's like she is a person, but she's also an idea of a person. Um, the way she's introduced into the book, she is literally giving a performance on stage. And then I feel like she never really drops that performance. That kind of is something that's really key to who she is. Like all of the name dropping of like books and artists and places and, and all that kind of thing. And then, and then we also see Michaela begin to sort of do that as well. Like she lives her life like a series of anecdotes that she can tell somebody about later. Um, I just wanted to talk about like this idea of constructing your own personhood and your own identity. Do you think that's something that everybody does at that age or is it something that like we all do? That's such a good question. Um, gosh, I don't know. I feel like I'm, <laughs> I feel like I'm probably not distant enough from that time to sort of comment on whether it's something that you continue to do for your whole life. I think that you probably always do it to degrees. I think the thing that's unique about that age is that people have this sort of combination when they're first at uni of, because it's like their first foray into adulthood, on the one hand, they really don't know themselves, but then on the other hand, they are desperate to assert themselves as someone. And I think that at that time in your life, you're particularly vulnerable to other people your age who seem like they already know themselves. And I think that um, while I'm sure for our whole lives, performing different aspects of our identity is something that we'll continue to do. I do think at that age, you are like particularly vulnerable to kind of latching on to someone whose personality is bigger than yours or more concrete than yours and trying to emulate it. And I think that that's sort of what Michaela does in the novel. Um, but then I sort of would also hope that her kind of experience of coming of age is one of learning all the ways that she is unlike Eve rather than all the ways that she is like her. You know, like she starts off this journey trying to emulate her and then hopefully by the end is like more comfortable with their differences. Oh, that's such a wonderful way of putting it. Uh, and yeah, I, I think I agree with you about the performative aspects of being a person um, and constructing an identity. Uh, I think as, as young people, we maybe we do it in really fast succession and mm. then they crumble apart on us. Um, and as an adult, you, you're still doing the same thing, <laughs> uh, but maybe in a, at, a, at a slower rate. Oh, right. Um, yeah, I also guess there's like an element of aspiration when you're really young because you do feel like you can be anyone. Um, and maybe that accounts for the faster rate. Like you're almost cycling through different different ideas of yourself all the time. And then um, I guess as you get older, that gets exhausting. Yeah, and, and I think you mentioned the comedy of this uh, novel, you know, that you wanted to provoke thought and at the same time get people really in you know, turning the pages and, and actually um, uh, having a bit of a smile. And I, I certainly uh, drew a lot from the over-the-topness of, of Eve. Uh, uh, you know, we first meet her as uh, someone alone in a, in a dorm bedroom and she's um, strumming a guitar and singing Janis Joplin to herself. And it's a, it's a real caricature. Um, but then 
the character of Michaela, she she kind of she's doing the same thing in her own small and quiet ways. And, and so is Paul when we get to know Paul a bit more, the philosophy teacher. Um, it kind of builds up to this kind of idea of, you know, is is there an authentic way to be? Um, or or are we just creating a facade all the time? Mm. Uh, is is authenticity a, a, a real um, possibility? Do, do you have an opinion on that? Or <laughs> is that just a question you wanted to throw out to the universe? Um, gosh, I don't... Um, I would like to think that it is a real possibility. Um, and I suppose I think that while, as you pointed out, the three main characters in the book are all performing. I think that, I guess that's sort of the aspiration of um, intimacy, really, that you can um, stop performing with someone. Um, and I think that maybe that's what Michaela finds so upsetting about some of the relationships that break down in this book is because she had thought that they weren't performances. And then after the fact, it sort of becomes apparent to her that they were. And I do think that there is a character in the book who I sort of don't want to be too didactic about it because I want people to respond to the characters however they like. But I personally think that um, Balthazar, whose name is ridiculous, um, <laughs> for those who haven't read it, they do point that out, is a character who is sort of as close as too authentic as you can get insofar as he doesn't take anything seriously except for a few things that he takes extremely seriously. Um, one of them being his like friendship with the main character, the narrator. Yeah, totally. Um, now that you say that, I do definitely see that in the character of Balthazar and also in like Michaela's reactions to him because there's this point where she says like, it's the first time she's given like a laugh that wasn't fake or like performed. So that's really interesting. Um, I want to talk about a different friendship for a little bit, um, which is kind of the main uh, takeaway for me from the whole book, which was the friendship between Michaela and Eve, mm -hmm. um, who are like these very strong, smart women in their own right. Um, but the friendship that they form has this really competitive edge, which I found really fascinating. Like they compete over money, sex, power, and even like in academia, especially. Um, and the way they interact with one another almost comes across as like an obsession, definitely from Eve's part, I think. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about their relationship? And also just kind of why do you think in like those intense female friendships, why do you think there is always that competitive edge? Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? And I also sort of, um, it's funny because when I was writing the book, I was sort of concerned that it was, um, you know, not good for the sisterhood to portray women as um, trying to bring each other down. But then um, since people have, more people have read it, it is only women who read it and say to me, oh, I had an Eve when I was growing up. Um, and it is almost all the women who read it, but um, none of the men. So I think that, like, on the one hand, I think that is that, is sort of a depressing commentary on how um, undiverse environments can have the effect of pitting minorities against each other. Like, I think that there's an argument to say that the way that Michaela and Eve um, want to beat each other academically in particular is sort of a symptom of just internalised misogyny because they are in this, like, very male-dominated academic environment and so they kind of um, perceive each other as a threat 
like they don't want to be the best philosopher they just want to be the best female philosopher um because they sort of see each other as like occupying limited space um but then i also think that there's like while that is sort of unsavory and kind of depressing i do think that there's something kind of inspiring about two women being so competitive um or yeah maybe inspiring is the wrong word it's certainly dramatically interesting um and i do think that it i think that to have a rivalry with someone you you have to respect them um and you also have to respect yourself because to compete with someone that means that you take your ambitions seriously and that you think that they're a worthy opponent and you take them seriously um and so i think that for women in an academic context there's something kind of empowering about that you know like they're they're not at uni to get a boyfriend like they're at uni to get really good marks and like i don't know maybe get the medal like they're both pretty intense <laughs> yes they're definitely very intense characters um but i thoroughly enjoyed their relationship and that kind of push and pull so i think that was you really pulled it off oh thank you you definitely have uh it's it's as as hannah said it's it is a it is a page turner it's uh and there's a there's a lot in not a lot of pages um speaking of something that is a lot um the relationship that michaela has with her philosophy lecturer paul um is really interestingly put together um the attraction of of one person to the other is inextricably linked to their status and their position and their context. Um, and, you know, Paul exerts power over Michaela, making the whole thing manipulative and, and ultimately abusive, right? Uh, so tell us about that. Was that a, a challenge to write? And uh, has doing so evolved your perspective on consent and power and the nuances of all of it? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. So I suppose what what I was trying to do with that um, relationship, I guess, structurally, was that I wanted to, I knew that I wanted to look at power and um, the way that, and I was sort of trying to make a point about how the way that we think about power is coded by um, narratives. And so I wanted there to be one relationship, at least in the book, that kind of fit a very clear trope. Um, and so in this case, it's the student professor affair. And what I was trying to demonstrate there is, um, well, so I was trying to make a comment about how difficult it is to think clearly without kind of about morality, without reaching to stereotypes. And that's sort of done through Eve's reaction because Eve, is very um, kind of black and white in her thinking. And she's very quick to say that the affair is wrong because he's older than her and he's a teacher, therefore he's in a position of power and um, he's a man and she's a woman. So for all those reasons, um, he's it's wrong because patriarchy. Whereas Eve also does something that is wrong to Michaela. And there is also a power imbalance there. But in her case, the power imbalance is owed to her being like hyper articulate and really beautiful and having a lot of social capital and being wealthy. And she doesn't see that as wrong. And I think that in part that's because it doesn't fit so neatly into a super narrative like patriarchy. Um, and so I guess I was just trying to get the reader to 
um, think about right and wrong, both within as well as outside those kind of structural narratives. Um, did that, wait, I feel like that didn't answer your question. So was it hard to, was it hard to write? I guess not really, because I, I had that very like clear kind of structural purpose in mind for what that relationship was doing. Um, and then did it surprise me? Is that what the second part of the question was? I, th I think that's the second part of the question was, was did it, did it evolve? Oh, did it did evolve? Trying to, did, did, it, did it evolve your perspective on things by trying to put it down on paper and, and make it or like read authentically? Yes. Did, did that kind of change your thinking on the whole thing at all? Yeah, I think it did change my thinking because in one way, which was that it became like clearer to me as I was writing it that Michaela, as you say, um, is attracted to him, not really for who he is, but like for what he represents um, in that she just wants to, um, it's almost like a challenge to her to, um, to transgress in this way. And I think that it um, kind of makes her feel powerful to have someone who is so conventionally powerful kind of um, submitting, not submitting, but falling for her. Um, and so I, I think that it sort of revealed to me as I was like trying to write it and writing how it concludes, how um, doomed relationships are if you date someone for what they represent rather than who they are. Yes. Totally. Um, I had a question about consent, but just you've brought up a few things and it leads nicely into something I wanted to ask you. Um, you mentioned that Eve has this like very black and white kind of thinking about what is like morally good and what is okay. And then she then goes and does something that other people would judge to be not morally good. Right. Um, so there's this question that Paul poses kind of ironically, um, in their first lecture and he says like how do we know what is good and bad and who gets to decide and I think Michaela seems to be someone who struggles and like is kind of more immersed in that morally gray area and like doesn't see she, she kind of struggles to fall down on either side of it um what do you like where do you kind of fall on that issue like who gets to decide what is morally good yeah, oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> I think, okay, like, gosh, I can't, like, I can't speak to it. I feel like that's, um, that's why we need, like, religion um, or, or some, something, I don't know, or someone very much more sophisticated than me. Um, but I, I think that, um, I, I guess, in terms of, I, I think that Michaela and Eve represent two extremes, as you say. Michaela is, like, consumed. She's almost, like, paralysed by nuance. Like, she can't just she ne can never really decide what's right and wrong and in her own life that is like agonizing for her because even with things that have happened to her that other people tell her are wrong she still can't decide um and whereas eve as you say is very black and white um and i think i suppose what i was trying to do by showing those two extremes was just demonstrate that um like both are flawed i was trying to have a bob each way because on the one hand eve I think does a lot of damage um, with her black and white thinking. But on the other hand, she actually achieves more for society generally than Michaela ever does. And like, while Michaela may not make as many mistakes, um, she doesn't um, have as much sort of benefit for people more broadly. So yeah, I guess, um, 
yeah, I don't know where I come down <laughs> between the two of them. I think, I think it's a question of how you think about morality. I think if you, if you think that whether you're a good person is defined by the consequences of your actions, then you're like Eve. And if you think that being a good person is defined by character and the principles that you adhere to, then you'll probably prefer Michaela. Um, but I don't know which I prefer. <laughs> I think I'm with you, Diana. I, I, <laughs> I strangely really love them both. Uh, and another really big question that kind of brews in this whole thing is around class, privilege, and meritocracy. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think about Michaela in the context she's put in. Um, not only um, is she at this big sandstone university, but she's, you know, she's, she's in the halls of residence which uh, are full of really well-to-do private school um, uh, people <laughs> lots of white kids i imagine um and uh you know she's on paper you know i think about someone like michaela and i think that she she's actually got it really good like she has the support of a mother she's really smart um she's got a big scholarship behind her um she's not without material means but that barely buys her a seat at the table and when she's at the table um everyone knows what cutlery to use in what order and she has no clue and has to just pray <laughs> um so is is meritocracy doomed in a world of uh, just increasing inequality? Uh, or is, is there hope for the universe? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think that meritocracy, like as a principle, assumes equality of opportunity um, at the start. Like, mm. I think that that's sort of like, um, yeah, I think that that's kind of like embedded in the sort of ideal of what meritocracy is. So I think that if you don't have a if you don't have equality of opportunity, then um, uh, it, it is necessarily an imperfect, imperfect meritocracy. Um, and I think that, as you say, Michaela is sort of a, a good kind of character to test that on because, yeah, like, as, as you say, she, she has so much going for her. Like, I personally, it's like tooting my own horn because I wrote her, but I think she's quite funny and she's like, charismatic and she makes friends really easily you know like she's got heaps of social skills um and she's mature for her age and um she's good looking and um she still struggles so much and like feels very inferior to these people that um seemingly are like less intelligent and less interesting than her um so yeah as you say if someone like Michaela can who has so much merit and so much potential if she can find it hard then um the meritocracy is not operating perfectly. Um, but I mean, I, I think she's still someone who like makes the most of the opportunities that are given to her. So I don't think it's sort of a, a dystopian picture, um, but it ho hopefully reveals that there's um, a long way to go. Yeah, that's, that's really well said. Were there um, other stories of, of female friendship or other campus novels that um, have been an influence to you in, in kind of coming up with this one? Um, absolutely. I sort of hesitate to mention them for two reasons. One is because I 
um, kind of worry that it sounds like I'm claiming equivalence and they're all novels that I like worship at the altar of. Um, and then the other reason is because I think that Love and Virtue wears its influences really on its sleeve. Um, so I'm sort of worried that if I start naming them, people will be able to pick out um, precise like stylistic or plotting choices that are lifted from other books. Um, but to answer your question, um, and I'll leave it up to listeners to decide how derivative it is. Um, I um, love The Secret History. It's a canonical campus novel. And I also love Brideshead Revisited. Um, and I read, I'd also read both of the Sally Rooney books that were out at the time, um, Conversations with Friends and Normal People. Um, and then in terms of female friendships, I'd read um, just before I wrote this Swing Time and then the um, Eleanor Ferrante's Neapolitan novels. Um, and both of those interestingly deal with female friendships that like the one in Love and Virtue are like not really wholesome and they don't sort of reflect well on the sisterhood. They're quite, they're formative, but they're also quite toxic. That's really well said. And those are, if, if you are being derivative of those books, they are great books to be derivative of. Would you agree, Hannah? Yeah, totally. Um, now that you say that, I didn't think it while I was reading it, but I love the secret history. And now that you've said that, I can definitely see strains of, yeah, that kind of academia um, setting. Yeah, those are great comparisons. Oh, thank, well, thank you. I want to squeeze in one more thing, um, because you, you mentioned Sally Rooney, and uh, I have to ask, have you, have you read the new one? I have read the new one. Um, what are your thoughts? She, um, I really liked the new one. I thought it was, um, yeah, I think that it did all of the things that Sally Rooney does very well. Um, again, it did all of them very well. And I think that if you, um, I think that both for people who haven't read one before, it's probably a good place to start. And I think that if you are a fan of hers, then um, you'll be delighted with more of the same. Yeah, that's a that's a good review. <laughs> <laughs> and I I yeah, I, I was keen to hear your thoughts because that you know, it's obviously it's just come out and it's and you know, like your novel, it's been bashing around the back of my brain for a bit. And and one of the things that it does deal with is um sex and power in a relationship and particularly like very articulate uh academic minded relationships. So uh not not to say that um, Love and Virtue is just another Sally Rooney wannabe. It's not. It's its own thing. It's really incredible. Um, but uh, you play with some of the same concepts and they're good concepts to play with. This is a hell of a book, Diana. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's so kind. Um, and, yeah, I would um, – I think that's very, very kind and I would be um, just – lying by omission if I didn't mention Sally Rooney as one of my influences because I think she's found um, a, a great way to talk about um, big structural power imbalances through the prism of very close intimate relationships um, and that's certainly something that I tried to do with some of the relationships in Love and Virtue so um, yeah. Will Thank you try you. and do it I again? Will you, will, you, will you write another novel now that you've uh, done the first one so successfully? Um, well, well, it's not even out yet, so successful according to whom, but um, yeah, I, um, yes, is a short answer. I'm working on a second novel right now for Ultimo Press as well. Perfect. Oh, How oh. exciting. 
Can you give us a little hint as to what it's going to, what realm it's going to be in? Um, it's going to be, it's sort of, it's going to be in a similar genre. It'll be um, contemporary fiction, um, also set in Sydney, but it's not going to be a, um, it's not a campus novel. Something Perfect. to look forward to, Diana Reid. Thank you for being on the Booktopia podcast. Not at all. Thank you so much for having me. It was a, such a treat. If you want to get your hands on this incredible new debut novel, Love and Virtue is available right now from booktopia.com.au and it's published by Ultimo Press. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.